Hi, uh, this is Aaron Weinacht with the New Books Network, and uh, today we're talking to Dr. Morris Finocchiaro about his new book uh, about the Galileo Affair. It's called On Trial for Reason, Science, Religion, and Culture uh, in the Galileo Affair. Uh, so thank you for being with us today. Yes, sure. So could you start off by... Uh, uh, telling us a bit about your academic background, uh, how you got to be interested in philosophy of science and Galileo specifically, what you studied, uh, th- those kinds of things. Um, okay. Yeah. In uh, high school, I developed an interest in, uh, in science, especially physics, especially theoretical physics. And so when I went to college, I mean, I went to, uh, to MIT where I wanted to focus on science, especially what I called theoretical physics. But now, as uh, as I studied it in in college, uh, I realized that what I was calling theoretical physics was more what, what is more properly called the philosophy of physics, namely questions about uh, uh, how did scientists arrive at these uh, laws that uh, and uh, uh, or what uh, is the relationship between science and other things like uh, the humanities or between science and philosophy or between what is the relationship between science and religion so in uh, so I in as a, an undergraduate at MIT I uh, I majored in uh, physics and philosophy, uh, a kind of double major. And uh, I uh, I wrote a bachelor thesis on the uh, on the philosophical interpretations of quantum mechanics. Uh, now, also, I mean, as an undergraduate, I developed an interest in, I mean, in the philosophy of religion, and, and I studied primarily things like world religions and uh, uh, and the arguments of for and against the existence of God but my I mean my main scholarly interest though was the, the philosophy of, of physics and the philosophy of science so then I, I went to graduate school at the University of, in philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley and uh, uh, so specializing in in logic and philosophy of science. And so there I was introduced to, to, to something new, uh, namely the historical approach to the philosophy of science, uh, namely the attempt to understand the, the nature of science and how science works by looking at uh, past uh, uh, episodes and discoveries in the history of science, I mean, such as, say, the Copernican Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, uh, the, the work of Galileo Galilei, or the, the work of Einstein, and so on. But uh, my focus in, in in graduate school in uh, the historical approach to the philosophy of science led me to write a dissertation on uh, on the historiography of science. The, the logic of these agar, the historiography of science, namely arguments for or against uh, the, the proper method to study the history of science. So, of course, Galileo was mentioned many times in uh, by the various authors that I was studying, but there, I did not have yet a, a special interest in him. Um, so I say in, in graduate school, Logic and philosophy of science, primarily the, um, uh, the historiography of science, and arguments for or against. So, the, the logic part of my graduate studies involved the, being exposed to an approach to logic that emphasizes uh, practical reasoning, applied logic, actual arguments rather than just uh, uh, abstractions. And, and so in logic, I wanted to deal with the analysis, evaluation, and construction of actual arguments. So then, uh, well, then I started, of course, I got a job at 
the University of um, Nevada, Las Vegas, as a, an, a, an assistant professor of philosophy. And I had to teach courses like uh, Introduction to Philosophy, Introduction to Logic, uh, and then once in a while, Philosophy of Science or uh, Advanced Logic. But now, even in my uh, even in my Introduction to Logic course, I since I wanted it to follow an applied and practical argumentation approach, I was always looking for actual arguments, real arguments that had either been given nowadays in contemporary world or in the course of history, actual arguments that had been argued for and against concerning some issues. And so after a few years, and it was not immediate, but after a few years of looking for proper uh, arguments, I came across the arguments for and against the motion of the earth that played a central role in the 17th century with the Copernican Revolution and the Scientific Revolution. Because, of course, the a main point of that revolution was that uh, before, uh, in the ancient times up until the 17th century, Almost everybody, including scientists and philosophers, believed that the Earth stood still at the center of the universe. But then, after about 100 years of uh, argumentation, experimentation, and so on, then most scientists and and philosophers uh, came to believe what we now believe, that the Earth is a planet that moves once a year around the sun, and also once a day, every 24 hours, it rotates on its own axis. Now, so the arguments, I uh, started focusing on the arguments for and against the motion of the earth, and there happens to be a, a famous book by Galileo Galileo, Galileo Galilei, who, after all, I mean, was regarded one of the founders of modern science, and especially perhaps the main one, so much so that many scientists call him the father of modern science. So I focused on, on this book, uh, a book by Galileo published in 1632 entitled Dialogue on the Two Chief World Systems, Ptolemaic and Copernican. And so I had... Uh, in a portion, uh, of course, even in my introduction to, to logic course, uh, a section of it dealt with the arguments. Now I had the students read, uh, say, the uh, current translation of, the, of that original book. And so uh, I got uh, interested in the analysis of uh, these arguments by Galileo and then by his critics, his opponents, or by people holding different views, including whatever arguments uh, they had, the, the ancients and or the pre-Copernicans before they came to accept uh, what we now believe that the Earth stand, that the Earth does not stand still at the center of the universe, but moves around its own axis and around the uh, the sun. So uh, I uh, became interested in Galileo, of, uh, reading not only the, this book, but other works by him. But now it, it also so happens that this book, full of argumentation for and against the motion of the earth, the dialogue on the two chief world system, this book by Galileo, it also I soon discovered. <laughs> is the book that led him to be tried as a heretic by the Inquisition. In other words, it was the publication of that book in 1632 that led to complaints against it. That uh, And so Galileo, the following year in 1633, had to stand trial with the Inquisition in Rome and ended up being convicted as a suspected heretic. Uh, that is, it's not the worst, uh, for, not the worst form of heresy, which would have been called the formal heresy. But 
uh, a milder form of of heresy, suspected heresy, for uh, for believing and defending the idea that the earth moves. So now, having discovered this, that this is the, the book that led to that trial, so the trial, of course, of Galileo in 1633 is one of the best examples to try to understand the relationship between science and religion. It leads to questions such as, I mean, does the trial prove that science and religion are incompatible? Uh, Why or why not? And I mean, it looks like uh, uh, here is a a scientist, uh, the father of modern science, uh, who uh, got in trouble with the Catholic Church for... uh, this uh, the Copernican view that the earth moves. And so doesn't that just prove incompatibility? Well, maybe or maybe not. Or look more carefully at the, the documents, at the situation. And so I got interested in studying the trial of Galileo from the point of view of what, if anything, it uh, uh, can tell us what we can learn from it uh, concerning the relationship between science and religion. And so that's uh, how I became interested in uh, both Galileo, uh, the trial of Galileo, and the problem of the relationship between science and religion, which, of course, also connected to my earlier interest in college uh, in the philosophy of religion. And it connects with my interest in applied logic, and it connects with my interest in the philosophy of science and the nature of science and the nature of scientific method. But in a sense, I didn't. Um, so I didn't discover uh, this. I didn't get involved in this topic until uh, after my studies, until I started teaching at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So uh, something I wanted to ask you is, you know, the Ptolemaic system had been kind of the the general understanding for, you know, for a very long time. I was wondering if you could summarize some of the key factors that, you know, kind of answer the why now question, right? Why why is it that seemingly all of a sudden the the Ptolemaic system seems, you know, unworkable, at at least to some, you know, some researchers? But so you, you are asking me what, I mean, what led people like Ptolemy or Aristotle or the ancients to, to hold that the earth stands still at the center of the universe, even though that. Yeah. And then, and then it, in a related, you know, and then on the other end of the question, why, why is it that in the, you know, in the late, in the 1500s and so on, why, why is it that a theory that had, had held sway for so long, why is it that that's the moment when people start to question it and not some other moment? Yeah. Well, okay. Of course. So originally for, for thousands of years, uh, uh, everybody, scientists and philosophers believed that the earth stands still at the center of the universe. Now, one, one main argument for uh, this idea was uh, direct sense experience. Namely, the earth feels to be at rest. The heavenly body appears appear to our eyes to move around the earth. So um, to, to believe otherwise would uh, be to go against the, the evidence, the direct evidence of uh, sense experience. So th- that was one very basic and common sense argument. I mean, and, uh, another argument was that, uh, I mean, that uh, astronomers, who had studied the details of the movements of the of the heavenly bodies? If you study at night uh, uh, exactly how the the heavenly bodies move and how some move in certain ways, others move in certain in other ways. Some are called the planets. Some are fixed stars. The the moon also then has its own uh, apparent motion. Well, uh, so. Uh, technical astronomers who studied this were able to explain all these phenomena by assuming 
that the Earth stands still at the center of the universe, and the uh, the planets go around it uh, in, in various orbits with various periods, and uh, and the same thing, the fixed stars attached to the celestial sphere once a day around the Earth. In other words. Uh, Astronomers in, in ancient times came up with a theory that could explain the details of what was observed, and and uh, so and the, the basic uh, part, the basic uh, view of of the theory that explained what was observed was that the Earth stands still at the center of the universe. Now, no other explanation. Uh, no other comparable explanation uh, was available. Now, well, but then, of course, I say no other comparable explanation. Uh, there were a few people who uh, examined the possibility. Maybe we can explain it by having the Earth move. For example, I mean, the, the daily, the daily apparent motion of all the heavenly bodies around the earth, like at night, the stars going around the earth. I mean, that could be explained if, if it's the earth that rotates uh, in the opposite direction once a day, and they, the stars are not moving. So the stars are not moving, the earth rotates on once a day, and, and so the appearance is... We don't feel uh, th th that motion, but the, it generates the appearance of the stars uh, moving uh, around the Earth. So, I mean, that was, uh, oh, I mean, it, the, that possibility was already thought of in ancient times. But now, but as, as people and, and uh, astronomers, scientists, and philosophers thought more about it, now, they also came up with arguments against this possibility of the Earth moves. In other words, yes, maybe you could explain this way, but there's no way in which the Earth can move. First of all, they said, so here are some of the counter-arguments that led them to reject the possibility that the Earth could move. I mean, well, one is, is what they called the argument from the deception of the senses, the deception of the senses. I mean, if the Earth uh, is rotating on its own axis, why don't we feel it? Our not uh, feeling it means that our senses would be deceived. Our senses are not telling us the truth. Our senses are lying to us. But that's that's absurd. I mean, if I. If our senses <laughs> don't tell us the truth, our knowledge is impossible, and we might as well give up the the, the idea of, of learning what the world is like. So that, uh, even though, so uh, on the basis of this argument from the deception of the senses, they rejected uh, the, the idea that uh, it, it could really be true that the Earth moves even though they could have seen that it could explain some of the motions of the heavenly bodies. But there were other, other arguments for to reject the possibility of the Earth's motion. I mean, for example, one argument had to do with the how things would be happen on a rotating Earth. For example, what would happen to bodies falling freely near the Earth's surface. I mean, suppose you lean out of a window and, and drop a rock. The rocks falls straight down. The, the falling uh, bodies move vertically downwards. And now it was a thought that um, that would be impossible on a rotating Earth because while the, the the falling body was in midair, unattached to the earth, they thought it should be left behind. The, the rest of the earth would be rotating, and so the body would end up falling to the west of where it was dropped. Namely, its path would be slanted. 
but that's obviously not observed. And so, um, uh, so they concluded that that, that uh, this observation about vertical fall proves that the Earth uh, cannot rotate. And there were other arguments. I mean, and uh, uh, another argument was um, if that if the Earth rotates around the Sun once a year, then when we look at the so-called fixed stars in uh, at night, their apparent position should switch back and forth because uh, as an observer moves, when you look at an unmoving object, it appears to shift in position. So if the Earth rotates around the sun, which is a very big circle, the Earth's orbit, it's, it means that we are looking at, say, at a given star. Suppose we focus on a given fixed star. We are looking at a given fixed star from very different directions. Uh, the, the difference being like the diameter, of, uh, being a function of the diameter of the Earth's orbit. And looking at the same object that isn't moving from two very different positions should make the object appear in a different location. So, you know, so if the Earth moves, revolves around the sun, then uh, uh, any one fixed star should uh, appear to be switching back and forth in the course of a year in, in its apparent position. But that was not observed. That uh, uh, any one given fixed stars always appear to be in the same place. No, uh, no shift in its apparent position. And so that was another argument that um, uh, convinced almost everybody that the Earth must be standing still at the center of the universe. Now, what happened in uh, beginning in the 16th century? Well, first of all, what happened is some somebody named Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus, published a book in which he was able to explain the details of astronomical observations on the basis of a moving Earth. In other words, as I said earlier, uh, and one great advantage of the, the ancient theory was that it, it could explain in a detailed uh, manner why we observe what we do uh, in the heavenly bodies. Well, now, in the 16th century, Copernicus, for the first time, was able to give a detailed explanation of the, all the fine points of uh, the... Uh, uh, astronomical observations of uh, the planets and, and fixed stars and moon. And so this, had, uh, this uh, of course, didn't, did not settle the matter, but it started, uh, it at least, you must say, answered the one objection against the motion of the Earth, namely that, uh, that there was no way to explain the what the movement of the heavenly bodies on, on the basis of the, the Earth's motion. Now there was. Uh, but still, of course, the arguments, like the argument from the deception of the census and uh, the argument uh, from uh, the various phenomena, like on the surface of the Earth, like uh, uh, vertical fall of bodies. So those arguments were not answered. And, and so... Um, well, so more needed to be done. And so the, the next big step, uh, I would say, came around 1610 when Galileo uh, built a better telescope than had been available up to to then, to up to that time, the telescope had been invented a, a few years earlier in Holland, and but uh, uh, Galileo heard about it and was able to build a, a better specimen, more powerful than any uh, built up to that time, 
And so with this telescope, Galileo had the idea of uh, of turning it toward the heavens to see what, what could be seen with it, rather than, say, just, uh, uh, for example, one use of the telescope up to that time had been, uh, for example, in... Yeah, in naval battles, if you are equipped with telescope, but your enemy isn't, then you can obviously have an advantage. You can see your enemy ship much earlier than they can see you. But Galileo had the idea of turning it toward the heavens, and he discovered many things, all of which seemed to undermine the idea of the Earth standing still at the center of the universe. I mean, for example, um, with the telescope, one can see that uh, uh, about the moon, that the, the moon is full, has a surface full of mountains and valleys, a rough surface pretty much like the Earth. Uh, so here is a heavenly body uh, the, the moon that, that is uh, very similar to the earth and uh, so the the earth um, maybe could be a, itself a heavenly body but of course that's certainly no conclusive argument but it started uh, people thinking but another uh, another thing that could be seen with the with the telescope was that the planet Venus seemed to show faces similar to those of the moon. In other words, if you follow the planet of Venus in its path in the heavens, during a certain periods, its shape is sometimes a full disk, sometimes a half a disk, sometimes it's like a crescent. In other words, the planet Venus shows phases like the moon. Of course, not the same period, and uh, but the, the planet Venus shows phases. Now, one of the many astronomical arguments against the motion of the Earth had been based on the phases of Venus and the fact that the no phases of Venus could be observed because i mean if the earth goes around the sun one of the arguments against the earth motion claimed if the earth goes around the sun we should be able then i mean then the position of the the, the sun moon the, the sun the earth and venus changes over the course of a year in such a way that sometimes you should see the full Venus, sometimes a half a Venus, sometimes a crescent Venus. But with the naked eye, this is not seen. And so the, the argument was, well, the Earth can't move because if it did, we would see the faces of Venus, but we don't see the face of Venus. So here now comes Galileo. With the telescope, yes, we can see the face of Venus. So maybe... We are moving. But of course, again, this was no conclusive argument. And especially because there was there was one, one argument against the motion of the Earth that even the telescope even telescopic observation could not answer, namely the argument about the, the fixed stars having to show a change of position in the course of a year. This is a change of position that's, uh, I mean, uh, the technical name for it is a parallax, a parallax of the fixed stars, uh, a, a change in the apparent position if the Earth revol uh, revolves around the sun. The point is, even with the telescope, you could not see any parallax of the fixed stars. The reason, of course, we now know is because the, the stars are so far away that the change in the, the, the in apparent position is so small that even Galileo's telescope and the te even uh, more powerful telescopes that were built uh, could not see this parallax of the fixed stars. And in fact, it took about 200 years until the 19th century before 
telescopes were powerful enough to be able to detect the very small uh, annual uh, change in apparent position of the fixed stars. So at the at the time of, of Galileo, the situation was relatively controversial. Uh, however, of course, in I mean, in 1632, in that in the book that I mentioned before, the dialogue on the two chief world systems, Ptolemaic and Copernican, uh, Galileo uh, undertook a critical examination of all the arguments in favor or against the motion of the Earth, and he was able to. To criticize, he tried to criticize all the arguments against the Earth's motion. He tried to strengthen the ones in favor of the Earth uh, moving, and um, and so the arguments in favor of the Earth's motion seemed stronger and were stronger than those against the, the Earth's motion. And so, on the basis uh, of that book and and of the um, the critical examination of all the evidence contained in that book, I mean, Galileo felt entitled to say that the Earth probably moves. It's that it's more likely that the Earth moves than that it stands still at the center of the universe. So that uh, is a, a brief account of uh, the Copernican revolution. What... Uh... What do you think originally prompted uh, Copernicus to write the write the book that he did? I mean, you you pointed out that it was really the you know uh, development of technology that you know kind of raised Galileo's eyebrows. What's what's the you know, if we could just go back to Copernicus for for a minute? You know what? Why does why does he conclude what he does at the time that he does it? Well, I mean, uh I don't think it's anything in particular, but uh, there is uh, the the fact that uh, the details of the heavenly motions had not yet been explained in detail uh, uh, on the basis of the Earth's motion. So for thousands of years, the, the those who believe that the Earth stands still at the center of the universe could say, well, look, there's no way of explaining all of those things. Now, obviously, astronomers, mathematicians, are people who like to follow up on the idea whether, well, let's see why or why not. (laughs) Let's see whether or not or what exactly we can explain if we assume that the Earth moves and and whatnot. And... uh, in a sense, I mean, uh, Copernicus wasn't the first one who tinkered with that idea of trying to work out more of the theory of a moving Earth. But no, no, and of course, so sooner or later, I mean, somebody w- was bound to was, uh, I mean, focused enough, mathematically proficient enough to work out the details of a a theory of a moving Earth and see what the consequences were and see that indeed we could explain uh, the details of the motion of the heavenly body. And so Copernicus was the first one to do do it, to work out the details. Uh, So so sooner or later, I mean, somebody in human history would have done it. And and, and other people, I mean, did a little bit Between uh, that is uh, between Ptolemy, who lived in the second century AD and the 16th century, a number of of astronomers did a little bit, but uh, not enough to to pose a a real um, uh, a real uh, alternative there. And Copernicus uh, was the one who did it. I think I think at this point we probably need to. uh... Uh, move to your point that really the Galileo affair is two affairs, right? The the original uh, trial, uh, you know, proceedings of the Inquisition, 
and then all of the various narratives about what that's meant since you you kind of cast as the second of the two Galileo affairs. I think maybe now it might be helpful to to listeners to have you sketch out uh, why there are really two Galileo affairs and what those consist of. Okay, well, the original. I mean, Galileo Affair is simply the, the original trial of Galileo, and it too, of course, um, I, has uh, at least two phases. It's, uh, I mentioned the, the, the book uh, that Galileo wrote, the dialogue in 1632 that led to the trial and condemnation in 1633, but there, there was a background to that in the sense that already in, in 1616, the the Catholic Church had condemned the theory of uh, moving earth, the Copernican theory, as being contrary to scripture. In other words, well, one of the, the arguments uh, from uh, actually even, even, I mean, from ancient times, the motion of, that in many places it is stated or in, implied in the Bible that the earth stands still at the center of the universe. So to, to say or believe otherwise goes against the Bible and so goes against religion and is heretical if you want to use a fancy word. Now, so when Galileo with his telescopic discoveries started pointing out that that is in 1610 and, and the following few years, when he started pointing out that the situation of the, of the scientific evidence and, uh, seemed to be changing, uh, well, uh, then uh, many of uh, Many uh, religious-minded people started uh, complaining and attacking Galileo that he was trying to undermine religion, undermine the Bible. And, and so uh, there were already, although Galileo was not brought to trial at that time, but the, the complaints were filed against Galileo. Yeah. And um, so in, in, in 1616, the Catholic Church condemned the theory that the earth moves as being against the Bible, as being contrary to Scripture. And Galileo himself, although he was not put on trial, but he was given a warning uh, by an, an official of the Inquisition. He was given a warning not to believe or defend uh, or advocate the theory that the earth moves. He had uh, uh, to shut up, so to speak. And so that was in 1616. Now, uh, for things were quiet for a number of years, but uh, then in 1623, one of Galileo's admirers became Pope, Pope Urban VIII. And so because of that, Galileo, Galileo went to, who lived in Florence, went to Rome to pay his respects to the Pope, had a number of audiences with the Pope, was very well received. And Galileo got the impression that if he wrote the, the proper sort of book about the motion of the earth and uh, the, the Copernican theory, as long as he, he stayed away from any uh, biblical interpretations, as long as he does, then wouldn't try to show that um, uh, th that the Earth's motion w was compatible with the Bible. But as long as he limited himself to scientific and philosophical questions, he could uh, discuss uh, the, uh, the motion of the Earth and the Copernicus theory of the Earth's motion. In other words, the, the Pope uh, Galileo got the impression that the Pope did not think that uh, the, the 1616 condemnation was meant to stop all discussion. It was meant only to stop a certain discussion, trying to prove that the Earth's motion is compatible with the Bible. That uh, wasn't supposed to be done. But so, uh, scientific and philosophical uh, evidence and argumentation was uh, allowed. And so Galileo, having gotten this idea from his friendly uh, Pope, uh, wrote to the dialogue uh, on the two chief world systems. But then, of course, the conservatives uh, 
uh, when they saw the book, that the book uh, did show that it was more likely to, that the earth moves than it stands still. Then they raise all kinds of complaints. They try to show that uh, uh, what Galileo had done was both against the, the church's declaration against the Copernicanism in 1616, as well as being against uh, what Galileo had been warned by officials to do in 1616. And so, uh, although, uh, so Galileo uh, then was uh, found uh, uh, to, to have violated uh, the the church's uh, warnings and the, the church's uh, uh, dictates of, of 1616. But so that ended, so Galileo was found to be a suspected a heretic, not, and was condemned to to house arrest for the rest of his life. His book was banned. But now, so this was the end of the original, what I call the original Galileo affair, the trial of Galileo. But of course, it started what I call the second Galileo affair, namely the controversy about about the meaning and the significance of the original trial, because, uh, of course, given that Galileo turned out to be right <laughs> in his scientific evidence and in his philosophical argumentation, then uh, in, in, in the last uh, 400 years of uh, cultural history, um, uh, the, the Kai common view as uh, the most common view is well, the trial shows that uh, that um, the Catholic Church uh, is an enemy of religion and an enemy of science, or and more generally, that religion in general uh, is in- incompatible with science. So many people draw this have drawn this lesson. Uh, and of course, these are not uh, just uh, ignorant people. I mean, some of the uh, cultural icons of Western uh, history. I mean, for for example, Voltaire uh, uh, said so in the 18th century, or Bertrand Russell in in one of his books uh, uh, states this. Or and so that's a common view. But then, well. The, the, and the last, but is that view really uh, uh, correct? That's uh, one issue. I mean, other people try to point out that uh, uh, that Galileo uh, committed a number of uh, either both uh, errors as well as uh, uh, he infringed a number of uh, warnings uh, and so it was Galileo's fault that he ended up being co- uh, being condemned. And, uh, so they, they, I mean, other in the last four hundred years, other authors tried to um, paint a more negative, uh, a more negative picture of Galileo and and a more positive one of the Catholic Church. Uh, then, of course, in the last four hundred years, on. Uh, a number of things have also happened that are part of what I call the second Galileo affair. Namely, see, at, at one point, uh, I mean, at one point in after 1633, the church itself admitted that the earth moves. <laughs> I mean, this came in, in 1835. Uh, see, the church ended up uh, admitting that um, uh, Galileo and Copernicus had been right on the scientific issue of the Earth uh, moving. Of course, this happened after more and more evidence, more and more scientific evidence in favor of the Earth's motion was found, uh, including at one point in, in the early 19th century, the parallax of the fixed stars was observed. So even the Catholic Church at one point uh, had to admit that uh, Galileo was uh, scientifically right, uh, so to speak. And then, now see, uh, and another issue that came up uh, 
is the, the one concerning about uh, where does the Bible stand on this? See, Gal- Galileo, before, already after the telescope in 1610 and before the 1616 condem- uh, condemnation of Copernicanism by the Catholic Church, he had argued, he, he had discussed the biblical argument against Copernicanism. He had tried to show that you, you should not see any conflict because the, the, the church, the, because the Bible is not should not be treated as a scientific book that gives information about uh, about uh, the physical reality. The, the per, Galileo po- tried to point out that the, the purpose of the Bible is uh, to uh, tell us how to go to heaven, how to go to paradise, what, um, uh, how should you lead a holy life? Um, uh, so the, 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 book, the Bible should not be treated as a uh, scientific or philosophical book that conveys information about the world. And in, in, his argue, in, in this discussion, Galileo even uh, 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 sought the support and got, he could point to other great theologians like St. Augustine, who, had, uh, who lived, I mean, in the, the 4th and 5th century A.D., St. Augustine, in a number of his writings, had said similar things. So, uh, and at the time of Galileo, many churchmen also agreed with Galileo that the Bible is not a scientific authority. And so the conflict between what the Bible literally says and what the science may show should be resolved by, by reinterpreting what the Bible says. So many, many churchmen uh, agreed with Galileo. Well, now this kind of discussion continued, of course, after the trial, and eventually the Catholic Church officially agreed that Galileo was right on this point too, namely that the Bible is not a scientific authority. This came in the year 1893 when Pope... Leo XIII issued an encyclical in which he basically put uh, forth a view of the Bible similar to what Galileo had advocated, that the Bible is not a scientific authority and therefore uh, you should not take uh, that there is a conflict between uh, what science tells us and what's written in the Bible. And so that's, uh, of course, the, the, this, uh, the, this uh, second affair also extended to our own time when Pope John Paul II tried to um, work out a, uh, what, is, what was called a rehabilitation of Galileo. Uh, uh, but um, uh, that's... Uh, uh, so, in, in some ways, uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, from uh, from 1979 to 1992, I mean, in some uh, ways, he did uh, things uh, that um, helped uh, show that uh, Galileo was right. Uh, uh, you know, but... Um, Eventually, though, the, that so-called rehabilitation of Galileo uh, ended up in a kind of unsatisfactory manner because uh, other parts of the church, even uh, in 1979 to 1992, uh, other elements of the church uh, were uh, not happy with the rehabilitation of Galileo, and so they tried they, they tried to point out they tried to resuscitate a a common criticism of Galileo that, that had already been I mean, rejected, namely the criticism that, yes, although Galileo was right on uh, the earth moves, 
although Galileo was right, the Bible is not a scientific authority. But uh, his arguments, uh, he did not have a proof of the Earth's motion. He did not have a conclusive proof. He was not aware of uh, uh, the limitation of the scientific method, whereas, according to this criticism, whereas the, uh, many Catholic officials at the time of Galileo were aware of the l- limitations of uh, the scientific method in general, the um, the weaknesses of uh, some of Galileo's evidence and, and arguments, and that's what they were trying to to point out to Galileo. Now, so in the in the rehabilitation of Galileo by John Paul II in 1979 to 1992, this criticism of Galileo was resuscitated, was uh, uh, taken up once again, and and so some. Uh, I mean, some of the ch- writings, but by some of the church officials, try to stress this. But I mean, but th- this is, uh, of course, this criticism of Galileo. I feel is untenable. Um, it, uh, uh, it just uh, uh, through a series of misinterpretations and superficialities, it uh, doesn't uh, understand. The, the complexity of uh, Galileo's argumentation uh, or the uh, imp, uh, call, the fact that they, they did understand the scientific method better th- than his opponents. So that's uh, the, the, the second affair which continues, so to speak. Do you think that um, is so, something that came up that I, I found myself thinking about quite a bit as I was, as I was reading that last part of your book there is, so we have all these different kind of competing narratives about what the Galileo affair meant. Uh, you think that subscribing to one or the other of those narratives is simply a matter of kind of picking your tribe that it's kind of pre-critical, or do you think that there's, you know, is there actual evidence we can use to say that you know one narrative is objectively better than the other, or at that point are we kind of getting getting beyond what you know can be empirically uh, shown? You have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, of course. I mean, I, I call I, I call um, the second the the affair. I mean, a controversy. So the, by that, I mean, I don't deny that there are, say, arguments for and against Galileo, for and against the church, whether what the church did to Galileo is right, whether uh, or uh, whether or not what the church uh, did to Galileo had some basis or whether or not that Galileo was uh, free from any fault <laughs> or, or any guilt. So, I mean, the, calling it a controversy means this is a subject for discussion. There are arguments for and against. But, okay, having admitted that, though I would say that uh, the, um, the, 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 the pro-Galilean um side uh wins i mean this uh th- this argument <laughs> and and this controversy i mean when you, you examine yes you listen to the op- opposite arguments and that, but then i i think that they are they can all be answered and that there uh, you can uh, show that the that the, the pro-clerical position uh, is based on um, uh, misunderstandings. So I I also took, uh, we're kind of getting close to the end of our hour here, but, uh, you know, for, for me, when I read your book, one of the most important things that emerged was the, the principle that it's possible to be both reasonable and wrong. And, and, uh, you know, you spent so much time on Galileo that, you know, it's pretty clear from your book that, that you think that there's some broader, you know, broader applicability to society now of the, you know, the controversy that happens in there. So what would you take to be the, what are some of the lessons here, you know, that, that you think that, uh, those of us here in, in 2020 should be, uh, taking to heart based on, 
what happened and your rendition of it. Well, uh, let me elaborate very briefly this idea that it is possible to be both reasonable and, and wrong. In other words, in, in my book, the account that I give there, I believe, shows that, I mean, for thousands of years until Copernicus and Galileo, uh, almost all scientists and, and philosophers believed that the Earth stood still at the center of the universe. Now, we know this is wrong. This is false. We know now. But they, they, were, they were reasonable in so believing because the, the available evidence pointed in the direction of the Earth standing still at the center of the universe. It took 150 years to discover that the Earth is not at the center of the universe, and the Earth does move, and and it it was a long process. It uh, required new instruments like the telescope, new discoveries, but also a point I mean I've not mentioned before: a new physics that is a, a physics defined as the science of motion, the science of moving bodies. Uh, the, 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 there was a physics available before Galileo, uh, the Aristotelian physics, but it, it too was wrong. But I mean, on the base of that physics, you can't make the Earth move. So you need a new, you needed a new physics like the law of inertia and the law of force, the law of action and reaction. Uh, so uh, they were the engines were reasonable but wrong. Now, at the time of Galileo, many of his opponents were also reasonable, although they turned out to be wrong. But see, as time went on, though, uh, eventually, though, on the question of the motion of the Earth, the point comes when uh, the, it's no longer uh, even reasonable to believe that the Earth stands still at the center of the universe. Okay, but now, uh, applied, say, to the other controversy over whether uh, uh, how the church treated Galileo and uh, um, whether Galileo was uh, completely uh, innocent of, of any fault. Uh, so there are arguments for and against. And, well, uh, okay, up to a certain point, uh, I mean, it's reasonable to try to find some faults uh, in Galileo, and I mean, including some scientific uh, errors or philosophical uh, limitations. And just like as uh, it's uh, reasonable up to a certain point to try to find some merit in what the church uh, was saying or is saying uh, today, but uh, then, well, you argue out the the situation, and uh, and, and uh, well, you, you take one point of view and not uh, another. Now, I mean, the, this situation of of say uh, the importance of argumentation, the importance of reasoning, and uh, the the fact that that often when things are controversial, there can be arguments on both sides, up at least up to a certain point, and up to uh, a certain level of, of discussion. Okay, this applies, of course, to, to almost any controversy, and and so one can, uh, I mean, the, the one can learn try by studying the Galileo affair, both the original trial and the subsequent one. One can then try to apply some of these lessons uh, to other controversies, things like of. Uh, uh, of course, in a sense, it would be, I mean, I think relatively easy to apply to a controversy like uh, that of evolution, the evolution of uh, the human species uh, or uh, versus uh, creation. I, I think it's relatively easy to apply there, but it has applications there. Uh, another application, a harder one, would be say uh, to the controversy about climate change. Well, um, so what are the, the arguments for and against? And do they uh, is the evidence conclusive on one side or the other? Um, or you can, I mean, apply it even to 
I mean, politics meaning, uh, I mean, to say there are two candidates running for a given office. Well, what are the arguments why one is better than the other? You can try to, uh, yeah, use argumentation and uh, reasoning in that situation too. Although, of course, it gets more difficult as, as things uh, become a more political or more, uh, I mean, uh, economic, uh, as economic interests uh, start to interfere, for example, with the, with, with the situation. Well, I think we're, we're about, uh, about out of time here, Dr. Finocchiaro. So thank you very much for uh, talking to us about it. I certainly enjoyed uh, reading the book. In fact, I'll probably return to it and read it again at some point here in the near future. So thank you very much. Okay. It was my pleasure. <laughs>